Hello and welcome to The Prestige, a podcast about films and filmmaking by film lovers for film lovers. Um, we look at a different film each week. This season we're taking a look at directors by um, looking at their work for a month at a time and we review the film, talk about any themes or ideas that get thrown up by the film and we'll always end with our recommendations of further watching based on the film of the week. We always start with our descriptions of what we've been watching other than the main film of the week this week. So Rob, what have you been looking at? Well, I, I had an odd experience this week. It's, it's, you're better with me here. This is, it's a weird one to talk about. I, I love zombie movies. I love horror movies. And recently, something up from Netflix has opened up a world of bizarre oddities of movies that they've kind of purchased and buried in their algorithm that I'm spending some time hunting out. I'm just trying to watch through them. So this week, I found a what looked like a, a, a zombie horror film called Bunks. And a little bit of research turned up since it's a TV movie from 2013. Now, what is very strange about this is this is a kid's film. This is a, 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 in the same vein as High School Musical and the same vein as every Disney movie ever made, this is a kid's zombie film. So no one gets eaten. No one gets killed brutally. Everyone has hijinks and learns about themselves and this group of misfits that are on a summer camp together come together to fight off zombies. But the zombies are, you know, they're beaten by tennis balls infected with magical spear serums it was a very strange experience it's this weird mashing of what is normally a very hardcore gory grim dark genre with the tropes of a high school musical disney-esque summer camp movie i enjoyed it it wasn't a bad film anyway it was just it was just not in any way what i was expecting from this film I was bitten to go into something like The Final Girls or Candyman or something, you know, uh, Friday the 13th, Halloween, you know, summer camp horror movie. And it just, it just wasn't. It wasn't even something as almost anarchic as something like Holes. It was just, it was just a fun kids film. It was very strange, but I very much enjoyed it. You know, it, it, it's one, it's one for the kids, shall we say. Yeah, right. Maybe not our kids, they're a little, a little young, but uh, for, you know, pre-teens, it's certainly in that wheelhouse. It's just, a, it's, you know, I went into it putting one thing and got something else very different, but it was still, still good. What about you? Well, I haven't really watched anything on the film side this week. I have been watching, just finished a TV series. It's the second series of an SAS programme, Who Dares Wins?, now, I don't know what attracts us to this, possibly because neither of us could actually do anything on the show. I mean, they do sort of preliminary warm-ups, the first thing they do when they get on the camp, and we'd last about 10 seconds in the preliminary warm-up. Um, so maybe, maybe it's aspirational, maybe it's um, getting out of the... We, we should get out and do more exercise, so this is our way of... Uh, assuaging that need um it is good fun it it is the the instructors on it are a set of delightful psychopaths um <laughs> who who were themselves um tortured by SAS instructors beforehand so feel the need to revisit this on people under their charge um it's utterly ridiculous but it's good fun so that's what we've been watching this week. Fair enough, fair enough. 
So this week, guys, we are continuing our our Spike Lee month, um, and we will be looking at his what's his 1989 film, and probably the uh, the most, not most well known of his films, but certainly often considered the the, the best of his films, uh, the film Do the Right Thing. Universal Pictures presents a new film from Spike Lee. Good morning, Miss Mother Sister. Now, Mookie, don't work too hard today. The man says it's going to be hot as the devil. I've been here 25 years. LaSalle's famous pizzeria is here to stay. Trust me. Mookie, the last time I trusted you, we ended up with a son. I know you can't stand it. You can't stand it. Hey, Sal, I'm going to burn for the war here. Do the Right Thing is set over essentially one 24-hour period in a block in Bedford Stuyvesant, or Bedstew, as it's often referred to in the film. Um, and it is the tale of this block of predominantly African-Americans, um, but there is a, a Korean-owned corner store, a Italian-American-owned pizzeria, um, and clearly at least one white resident of the street. And it is about the, the racial tensions that bubble under the surface and in some cases don't bubble under the surface and are clearly on the surface and it's about the people and their history and the shared history of this street this block um, and how all of those things come together to lead towards a quite significant some some significant acts of racial violence and retaliation it has a very eclectic um, cast, very eclectic uh, compilation cast of many people who you go, oh yeah, no, like it, a lot of this cast have gone on to do other things and a lot of the names in this are, are well-known names um, and some of them who weren't at this point. Once again, our main sort of point into it is Spike Lee playing himself whilst not playing Mars of last week. It's still very much that same kind of character's type. And I think that's probably where I will leave our description of this film. Uh, Sam, having been a fan of Laugh Week, she's got to have it. How did his his step up to the major leagues with Do the Right Thing sit with you? I really liked this film. I wasn't sure where it was going. It seemed to... I I didn't really get a, a handle on it for the first hour and a bit. But the the... And we will go straight into spoilers here, everyone. So buckle up but the climactic scene of racial violence was just one of the most mind-blowing things i've ever seen and um, the yeah I, I wasn't sure where the film was going I, I i thought the performances were better than they were with she's got to have it but i still it, i could tell it was going somewhere and i didn't know where it was going and then it just blew me away the ending I thought it was brilliant. Um, not a lot more to say, really. Um, I I love this film. I love the experience of it. Um, I get the feeling, Rob, that you were on board with it as well. How did you feel? Uh, yes, I I now I've never say I, I will say prior to this month I've probably only ever seen one Spike Lee film, and that was Inside Man, which I feel is very out of sync with the rest, maybe of his of his um work, and this film. <laughs> watching this film was one of the most profound cinematic experiences of my life I, I absolutely loved watching this film this film took me and me to places that I wasn't expecting from this kind of film 
even halfway through the film, I mean, the film has its kind of, its jarring nature of what could be considered almost slapstick comedy. It certainly is a film that merges comedy and drama, but is in, is infused throughout with is this deep, deep sense of sadness. Mm. Sadness. And, you know, it, it's the idea of the angry black man is a well-worn and well-worn-out trope in almost all media. And this film, whilst people like Spike Lee and a lot of um, African-Americans and, and, and black people from everywhere have a right to anger, have a right to anger at the way the lives, that the, the world it treats them, how treated them, there isn't that here. He, he just approaches all of this with the idea of humanity and the idea of, of just crushing sadness at what has happened. And, you know, the, the whilst the film does touch on the ideas that have been portrayed elsewhere, the idea that everyone's a little bit racist, it doesn't it doesn't allow that to be a get-out clause. In the same way things like Avenue Q or Crash, that, that to them is the final say. Everyone's a bit racist, so we move on. Here, it's like, well, there are consequences of that. And, and that, that, isn't okay, that isn't okay. And it just, the endings with, with and then we'll go right to the spoilers here, with, with, with the death of Radio Rahim and the burning down of Sal's Pizzeria um, and the almost burning down of the Korean supermarket, it's just sad. You don't feel vindicated. You don't feel triumphant in the same way other sort of films of racial retaliation can make you feel. You know, at the right at the moment, you end your smiley putting a picture of, of Malcolm X and Martin Luther King on the wall of the now burnt out pizzeria. There isn't a sense of triumph. There isn't a sense that uh, that anyone's won the day. You just feel this crushing overwhelmness of well, yeah, that's that's that the, the hollowest of hollow victories. Yeah, and I, I was thinking what particularly struck me a, a, towards the end was that this this title, Do the Right Thing, that, like you say, is just not possible. Whereas in something slightly more trite about racial tension and or violence or something easy like Avenue Q can just say, well, let's all do the right thing and everyone's a bit racist and yeah, okay. Mm. They, there was this sense that it's just not possible to do the right thing. That, I mean, when when you have Mookie and, and the trash can and he's obviously made the decision to start the riot that and Sal's Pizzeria. It, it's just so sad. And you know that... I mean, the the right thing is to... Is the right thing to side with the people who've been employing him and to reach across colour lines? Or is the right thing to side with his African-American community? And you think, well, you just don't know. So... Him throwing that trash can through the window is this ultimate... It was just like it was a howl. It was a... I don't know. I, I know what I'm doing is wrong, but there is no way of doing the right thing here. Well, this is what, this is what I think we, we can... If Let's say this, this down a bit more of a philosophical sort of lance, can't even. We get into the idea of, of, of a right thing. What is a right thing? You know, is... Do you follow something like like Kant and his idea that there is an absolute moral right, or is there a situation where it's more about what's right in the moment? You know, you've got a situation. You know, there have been many readings of what happened in this film, and the only and you know, the, obviously, the death of Radio Rahim is clearly a wrong thing, 
Um, but the point that led up to that, is anyone in the right? And if you'd look even at the, uh, shall I say, one of the most diversive bits of the uh, the film would say that Mookie throwing the trash can through the window. He, he the, for there's, there's a reading of all he did. He betray Sal, or did he shift the focus from Sal and his brothers getting attacked to the building being attacked, mm. or did he actually you know actually say these people are you know I, I work with Italian Americans, but I am a black man. So when it comes down to it, I'm going to side with my black brothers. Mm. And the idea that the, the, the people search and you know as. You know, as 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 white people watching this film, we are looking for an absolute truth. We're looking for a reasoning behind this, and it comes down to the idea: is is the right thing? Is there a right thing? Is there an answer? Is this a, is this a, a a no win situation in which there isn't a single right thing to do? And that's why we are in this inescapable cycle of, of racial violence in America. That there is there isn't a single bullet of what is the right thing to do. There's just the the choices of making the right thing for the right people. You know, mm. what's the right thing for the black residents of of this block is not the right thing for the Italian Americans or even the young black people versus the old black people. Or even within that, you know, we we don't have is is there a right thing to do? Mm. And I think that particularly around this question of violence, but also the question of morality what's the right thing to do is it comes back to this picture that smiley's got that starts and ends this film of martin luther king jr and malcolm x though those are two famous attitudes to the mistreatment of black people in america different ideas about whether or not to use violence how to use violence in in resisting oppression violent oppression that this this question of what is the right thing to do be, is is something that's it's not ju- I, we can we can sort of use this philosophical dis- discussion as a sort of a, a distancing thing. This is but this is something that's very real, and very important, physically important for whole generations of people, and still is. But I think that, that's that's the interesting thing is that you look at this film that. Um, a, it's interesting that the the uh, quotes at the end were added by the studio because they wanted to uh, have a different end into the one that Spike Lee originally wanted to go for. But the, even if you just take the, the, those, those two, the two sort of contrasting endings, the two quotes and then the shot of the two of them together, that feels like the, the film, if there's a message to this film, and I, th- I think the film does resist messages a bit, it's the idea that there isn't, there isn't a right answer. You know, you've got these two people who are essentially friends, who are ostensibly, you know, colleagues, but are on the same side of the divide, or are they just, you know, do different views on the on the same on the same side of a divide, mm. or a different side? And but they're still friends. And is like the idea is that is Malcolm X right, or is um, Martin Luther King right, or are they both right? Because it comes down to situation, and you know, you, you can't have one way or the other. Both are needed. You know, you need the uh, in the same way with this film, you need. The violence you need the uh, the violence of the racial reaction to Rakim's death, but you also need the reconciliation the following morning. You need Sal and Mookie to have a moment of coming together the next day because both are what make the world turn. And as as uh, Samuel Jackson says at the end, you know it's only getting hotter. I was thinking that that scene with Mookie and Sal. I just thought that's 
There was, I mean, I, I found the, the trash can scene in the beginning of the riot very powerful, but I thought that reconciliation was very powerful as well. And I think, like what you're saying, that this this film issues the idea of messages of, I'm committing, yeah, black and white messages. Yeah, I probably shouldn't use that phrase, but it, 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 it suggests that there's no sort of clear cut message, no clear cut. Um, right or wrong thing here but I felt that scene with Mookie and Sal was as near as you get to a message and in I mean in what you're saying about the studio having added those bits I I mean I can see that I'm not surprised with that because I thought that was a little out of step with the rest of the film I thought that scene with Mookie and Sal and then Samuel L. Jackson is only getting hotter and this shot of Brooklyn was enough of a resolution. Mm. Because it was just a little bit too neat to have that those those gradations at the end. I mean, it, it did seem to hammer home the point, but I, th- I think that's that, that, that worked for me. I, th- I felt that was an interesting ideal because, you know, you've pointed up... In this film, I think... If, if, it, if it is to withstand criticism, needed those on the endings, because otherwise you have the very, very obvious point of view in saying, well, you know, that's just, that's just black people living on the street. You haven't got the, you, by drawing a clear line from Mookie, who is this possibly absentee father, not a great friend, not a great employee and a bit of a hustler. And if you can draw that line directly from his lived experiences directly to Malcolm X and Luther King, then that makes it all the more powerful because it's like this isn't this isn't an a you know a, a situation that is can be built up by being smarter or better or somehow you know the idea of, of a more enlightened person it, it, it you have the same dichotomy at, at the for want of an absolutely better word the other end of the spectrum mm. and i think that's what not elevates it because I don't think it needs elevation, but the idea that you need to like it it adds power to the struggles of this one block by making them universal. Otherwise, you have the same situation as something like now this obviously is a very very different film, but something like Empire Records, which someone's going takes place over a day, and a lot happens in that day, but it feels like a moment out of time. It doesn't feel like all record shops have this day. Mm. Whereas in this film does draw a line from what happened in this movie to every other instant of of black violence that we see, you know, the the, the recommendation, the, the dedication at the end to other people killed um, through violence, it, like it, it is making itself some sort of you know avatar, some sort of sort of mythic tale that is replicated down the years. I thought one one thing you, you've touched on and said this is this film has done better than others and I agree with you is the idea that there is racial tension there is there is xenophobia inherent in black attitudes in America and that was something that was very powerfully put with the you have um ML and Sweet Willie and Coconut Sid on on the corner being abusive towards the Korean American across the street or you have um, Pino being Pino calling Mookie a monkey or you have the cult being I mean being racist as well and you think well there's some and and then you have sort of Mookie going home and you you realize that he is a father and that was 
that was quite a surprise as well because that seemed to come out of nowhere. But his his family, his wife, well not wife, his his partner and his partner's mother were obviously Puerto Rican, and he didn't want his son growing up with his grandma speaking Spanish to him. Mm. You think well. Again, this goes back to this idea of morality because what it what is right is is it right? It's obviously not right for any anyone of any color to say don't speak that language. It's horrible. Yeah, and you think well, it's Mookie's just doing what is done to him. Yeah, I think you know it, it, it's this is I think I, I still come back to that. There's a the sequence in the middle of the film in which can we break out the fourth wall? And all the characters, all characters, but a lot of the characters do a piece to camera in which they unload a series of racial slurs on each other, and it starts off with with uh, um, Pino and Mookie, and then it moves on down down round the block. And I think that, that that's where I this come back to this idea that the film looks beyond we're all racist. That clearly that film, that section clearly shows that we're all racist, and it isn't the case of black versus white as often the racial sort of lines are drawn because you bring in the Koreans, the Puerto Ricans, the Koreans themselves go on to sort of attack the Jews and there are no Jews in the film. Mm. Um, so the film, like it kind of draws that line in the sand and says, well, what next? You know, we, we, we accept that all of these people come with a racial prejudice um, and it, more than just being a little bit, as other films say, you know, everyone's a bit scared of you know the, the, the bunch of black kids running at night. Like, these are these are angry, violent words. These aren't just cases of coming up with some prejudice. These are racist people. But then you still have the rest of the film to do. Mm. Um, and Mookie, you know, Mookie is clearly set up in that scene to to be have racist views. And you know, even at the end when you have the sort of the confrontation between Radio Rahim, bugging out and and Sal, you know, th- it is it is Radio Rahim and, and bugging out who start the racial slurs on Sal before Sal, who at this point had been some sort of moderating sort of role, especially from from compared to his son, yeah. unleashes as well. Um and it's it's the film doesn't, so, 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 I keep coming back to the idea that the film doesn't end with the idea of all races. It starts there, and then what next? We often look at the way that films are shot, and something that adds to it, and it's really clever that Spike Lee's done, is that he often, that racial abuse will come in from outside the screen, or from outside the shot. So you had, I'm just thinking of, um, you had Pino and Sal in in the shot, and then you have um, Smiley coming to the window, and then you have the the guys sitting across the street, having having a conversation, but you can't see that. No. So it's sort of extending this idea. You've got the sort of a, a very closed shot on these these two Italian Americans, and then this racial abuse is coming in from outside of the screen. It's, it sort of implicates more than the, just the the characters, more than just the characters of the film. It sort of implicates the audience as well to some extent because it's saying that, well, not only is everyone a bit racist to start with, that's where we're starting from this film, but everyone, and that includes you sitting out there, and that's something that gets done with those those pieces to camera as well. Mm. You think, oh, right, we're breaking the fourth wall here, and also it's time for everyone to feel uncomfortable about the way they treat other people. 
Well, I think that's the idea of the film is, I mean, and obviously it's, we, 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 we joke around this a lot, we talk about it a lot, but both you and I coming in and watching this film from a white privileged point of view. You know, it, it, we, I've read articles about how that generally we, we are more predisposed to talk about and sort of appreciate Sal as a character opposed to Mookie, who are essentially the two leads. And it's even notable in this podcast itself, we've discussed more about Mookie's acts and the burning down of the pizzeria than we have about the the, the violent death of Radio Rahim at the cop's hands. Mm. Um, and the film does obviously treat that moment with some respect and weight, but a lot more of the conversation around this film exists about the pizzeria and, and whether Mookie did the right thing despite the fact that he's just watched one of his best friends die. That's a good point, actually, because that's one of the things that contributes to this supreme act of anguish, violence, who knows what it is with Mookie and the trash can at the end, is is the fact that and he doesn't have to be reasonable because Rahim has just died. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. And, and, you know, I think it's interesting for you earlier, I mean, Radio Raheem's quite a sort of a monolithic, quite a uh, monosyllabic character for most of the film. Apart from a beef scene in which he talks about his knuckles, this love and hate knuckles he has. Mm. And he does this sort of the, this boxing match in which love wins. And then right at the end, just before Mookie throws the trash can, he yells hate. He yells hate as he throws it. Mm. And it's this idea that, that even uh, Radio Raheem, who who believed honestly that you know, love and hate are duality and that love will win, gets taken down by hate. He gets destroyed by hate. And the hate, that feeling of worthlessness and powerlessness, I suppose, is what overcomes Mookie. Hmm. I think also there's the, the the way that Raheem gets treated by the cops. It's, it just feels like... There was something powerful in the film. There were there were powerful characters in the film, Mookie and Ready Raheem bugging out and Sal and then it's just a shame that and I'm not this is not the saying bad things about the film at all. It's just it's part of the film's sadness at the end is that it's just such a stupid way for Ready Raheem to die. Mm-hmm. It's just such an insignificant thing that happens. Such a banal act of violence that leads to his death. Well, I think that's where the, the power of the film is, is that they, you feel like you can draw a straight line from the very early interaction between Buckingham and Sal about black people on the wall all the way to that point. And it just feels like, you know, by, by understanding the journey that took Radio Rahim from where he was in that film to being dead in film, by understanding it, it makes it even more pointless. Mm. You know, what's already a senseless death becomes even more senseless by understanding what got there. Yeah, and it's you know, it's interesting. Obviously, that we don't. Well, what the film is great work in humanizing. It doesn't actually humanize the cop in any way. We don't see any more of his story. But you do have the other cop sort of telling him to stop, and there is a a, a black cop featured in the sequence as well. So the police as a whole are certainly not demonized in the way they could be elsewhere. Mm. And I think it, you know, it, it's just. This film is so it works on so many levels, and it's, it's certainly a film I think is going to hang with me for a while, um, in a way that very few films have. I think it's definitely one that we could spend more time on. This needs more than a podcast. This film. Oh, well, I think the fact that you know, twenty-five years later, we're still talking about it, and it's still, yes. it's yeah. still as, as pressing. And you know, as I say, we talked last night, last week about um, 
She's Got to Have It. And how it feels like a 90s film, even though being mid-80s. And this was, what, 89? But it still feels... It could have been made yesterday. Mm. And, you know, it still feels prescient. And it feels like... Uh, it still feels like no matter when you made this film, it, it saddens to say, but you can make this film in the fifties. We made it in the forties, sixties. You know, we made it yesterday, and it still would have had the same kind of, same kind of power, the same kind of questions. And it just it's it, you know, the saddening that I felt watching this film about the story itself. It's only grown by the the feeling that here we are, twenty five, thirty years later, and it's no better. In many mm. ways, the last couple of years have seen this is getting worse. Yeah, I mean, this is this is a film about, in some small part of it, is about racial police brutality in the US. And you think, well, that's a story that has not gone away. That's yeah. a story, like you say, in the, in the past couple of years, sadly, it's become ever more important for us to think about it. It's, uh, it's uh, very much kind of prescient in that kind of way. Mm-hmm. So, despite the fact that me sort of saying that this is a, a, a film unlike many others, and especially the experience of it, do you have any recommendations uh, for other things that could tie to this? I do, but they are not really thematically related because, as you say, this is a this is a film of its kind. It, it's film out on its on its own. Um, in terms of actor connections I have a couple um, I do have sort of honourable mentions to um, quite, quite a few brilliant actors in this like you said there are lots of people who've gone on to do other things so honourable mentions for so yeah, very young Martin Lawrence um, Samuel L. Jackson Samuel Jackson actually, Miss Senior Love Daddy, made me think about the beginning of Die Hard Three, which also featured Brooklyn Heatwave, and that, but that feels a bit too obvious. Um, and then John Turturro, the the particularly racist son of Sal Pino, who was Joey Knish and Rounders, but I can't recommend that again. Two weeks after talking about the again. Got to draw a line somewhere, Sam. Yeah. Um, so the two I've gone for this week are um, Danny Aiello, who played Sal, and he was in Leon, which is a fairly old film now, not as old as this one, but um, I've got a lot more to say about this. It's a brilliant Luc Besson thriller. It's great performances from... Sean Reno, Gary Oldman, a very young Natalie Portman. It's just brilliant. Well worth watching. Excellent. My second one is Giancarlo Esposito, who played Bugging Out, who's been in a number of things. Is never really the main character in things, but has been in lots of ancillary roles. He had a sort of Major-ish role as Gus in Breaking Bad. He had a part in The Usual Suspects. He was Will Smith's dad in Ali. He was Akila in the recent John Favreau Jungle Book. Um, and I want to celebrate his part in one of my films of last year. Um, perhaps surprisingly so, as it was a Netflix original, but it was um, one of the one of the good Netflix originals, one rather than one of the questionable ones. It's a film from last year called Okja, um, which had great performances from Tilda Swinton, Paul Dano, but 
I suppose a lot of it was down to the Korean cast and the direction of whose name I've forgotten. I've got it written down. Bong Joon-ho, very good. Um, so Ogja, well worth watching. Excellent, excellent. It's still on my, on my to watch list. Now you're right. This film doesn't have many peers for me to talk about, uh, but I've got two that I, wa- I wanted to mention. Both kind of thematic in different ways, rather than any kind of actory link. Uh, so the first one is a film from two years ago, um, from Raoul Peck, and it's a film called "I Am Not Your Negro." I think I talked about it at the time when it came out. It is a, essentially a documentary talking about uh, writer James Baldwin. Mm. And his the race in America, um, and his unfinished novel that he tried to write about this. Um, and whilst it doesn't complete that novel in that way, it is about that. And it is about it draws these same comparisons about how things don't change and how the race tensions America and where they came from and what caused them. And it has that same kind of sense of overwhelming, crushing sadness mixed with rage. Um, if you haven't seen it and you have any kind of interest whatsoever in in the racial tension in America, this is this is as close to a primer, as close to the definitive text about it that I, I have seen certainly in the last few years. Um, it's just it's very 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 good. Um, so yeah, I am not your ego from 2018. My second one is one is not about the racial tensions um, that uh, we've talked about elsewhere, but has that same kind of feeling in kind of a structural narrative way. And that's 1992's Glen Gary, Glen Ross. This is a, a film that's been, in many ways, parodied to death. Um, Alec Baldwin has a, a, a very famous speech about being a closed in the middle of it. But it's a tale of um, a real estate office who are trying to sort of sell up over a day. And it has that same feeling through the entire film that this, that uh, Do the Right Thing has of there's something bad coming this, the, 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 what are funny moments, jokey moments, you know, bantery filled moments, especially in Glinglinga Ross. There's still this feeling that there's something lurking at the end of this film that's going to upset this. Um, and the film wasn't going to say over 24 hours, it has the same kind of narrative. It just felt like some sort of spiritual narrative sequel to do the right thing, the same kind of, not tricks, but the same kind of moves and techniques that are used to make, that, make uh, do the right thing. And also, it is a very, very good film that gets all the love that it deserves. So, if you haven't seen it, and if you want to listen to the podcast, I bet you to have seen it. But if you haven't, Glenn Gary, Glenn Ross has the same, has something worth looking at, certainly. So, next week, we are continuing with our Spike Lee miniseries, and we're moving forward to 2000 with his uh, controversial film, I suppose, in many ways, about um, a topic that we've been talking a lot about this week and to be productive to continue that discussion next week it's a topic of racial violence explored in his 2000 film Bamboozled Brilliant Till then guys you can find both of us on Twitter at Petty Podcast You can find just me at life underscore academic and just me at Rob Kaiju and we'll see you back here next week Prestige is a Kaiju Industries production. Check out their other work at facebook.com forward slash Kaiju Industries. Rawr.